Welcome back to The Joseph Cox Show. Last week, my wife said that I spoke way too quickly, so I'm going to try and slow it down this week. It's also a busy week, but I'm not saying quite as much. There's not quite as much content in this week's reading. So this week, I'm going to do four faces of Torah, but I'm going to start with the structural instead of the inspirational, and then I'll move on to the other parts because the other parts need that structural context in order to make sense. So the first question we have to ask is this. What is the Mishkan? I'm not going to go into some complex mystical answer. The Torah says what it is. The Mishkan enables Hashem to dwell within the people. The important question is, how does it do this? The symbolism in the Torah tends to be rather concrete. So let me present my theory of the Mishkan in one sentence. The Mishkan has the representations of the revelations of Hashem placed within the representations of the people themselves. In other words, God dwells within the people. Through the process of the Exodus, there have been three major revelations. The burning bush, or the snare, the man, or the bread given so that Hashem can show his face to the people, and the giving of the Torah on Har Sinai. These three revelations are represented by the articles of the Mishkan. The giving of the Torah is represented by the Aaron, the Ark, and its cover. Not only do the physical Ten Commandments stay within the Aaron, there were Keruvim, angels, at the giving of the Torah. The man is represented by the table and the showbread. Before giving the man, Hashem says, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, speaking to them, saying, At dusk ye shall eat flesh, and in the morning ye shall be filled with bread, and ye shall know that I am Hashem your God. This is the bread of faces, the lechem panim. There are actually two cases of Hashem feeding the people. The first was the man, but the second was when he fed the elders in Parshat Mishpatim. Gold in the Chumash represents the divine. Just think of the Kruvim and the Menorah. This table and its utensils have gold all over them. While the bread represents the man, I think the table represents the meal Hashem served the elders. The Sneh, or burning bush, is represented by the Menorah. It has branches and flowers and knobs, and it continually burns and is never consumed. Just as the burning bush represents creation without the destruction, so does the Menorah. This is why the Hanukkah miracle is that the oil lasted eight days. It was as if, instead of just being a symbol of the burning bush, the menorah was actually burning without consumption. All these representations of revelations are placed within an area called the Kadosh, or Holy. It is a further hint that they represent the divine. So where are the people in this representation? Before the giving of the Aserah brought the Ten Commandments, Hashem describes the people making as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom has order and rules. The Torah, re re the Torah reading of Mishpatim, right after the Ten Commandments, starts with a civil code, laws that have specific outcomes enforced by man. The laws aren't just civil, they set the scene for a nation that can relate to God. One might call it a kingdom of priests. There are 53 situations in these laws, and there are 56 outcomes. The Mishkan has 53 internal pillars and 56 external ones. The pillars represent the kingdom of priests. And what about the holy nation? The word for nation is goy. It is also used for a cow's cud. It is formless. It isn't well defined. What are the inner pillars, the pillars of the kadosh, covered with? Floppy hangings with angels on them. The angels have no form without the pillars, and so the floppiness represents the goy part of the people, while the angels represent the holy side of the equation. 
the pillars of the kingdom of priests, and the hangings of the holy nation. And together, they represent the ideal version of the Jewish people. Going back to my one-sentence description, or at least paraphrasing it, the Mishkan is a representation of the revelations of Hashem within the representations of the people themselves. Does it stop there? Of course not. Let's dig into a few details and show how. I'm going to go into the details of the article and the Mizbeach this week, and I'll go into the details of the buildings after the sin of the calf when they come up again. We'll do it this way in part because this reading is all about that divine perspective, and these are the articles of the divine. The structure of the Mishkan is about the nation, and so it is the first focus of the actual construction. You'll notice this when the actual building occurs. The, the Betzalel and the people build the building first, and then the articles afterwards. But here the articles come first. This is Hashem telling Moshe what to build. Okay, the Aron has two parts. This is fitting because the Jewish people were not the only beings present. There were also the Kruvim, or angels. And so the Torah represents two articles for the Aron. The Aron itself, the people's part, is represented by sheeting wood wrapped in gold. As I said before, gold represents the heavenly or the divine. Silver, for future reference, represents the human reflection of the divine. Just think of the holy half-shekel that we give when we're counted, or the sun and the moon. Shittim, on the other hand, literally means grudge and represents the limitations of humanity. The wood covered in gold shows the human, the limited human, in the presence of the divine, while the gold-only cover represents the purity holy. The Aaron represents the Jewish people at Har Sinai, while the cover represents the Kruvim. The table has the same materials but no cover because there were no Kruvim there. Both the table and the Aaron have a czar of gold. It is translated as a crown, but it literally means foreign. In both cases, the czar is around the top of the article. It represents just how foreign that which was above the people actually was. And just like the Kruvim, the menorah itself is only gold. The menorah is a symbol of a unique divine power. Plus, the people weren't there, only Moshe. There's one more thing about the materials of the Kruvim and the menorah. They're beaten. There's this idea of kasheh, that's the word that's used. It's something that's difficult. Just as Hashem, Yotzeret Adam, Hashem wills humankind into being, the way in which people will the divine into our world is kasheh, is through, it could mean hammering, but it also literally means difficulty. By exercising our physical effort, we can bring the divine into our world. Through this basic analysis of the materials, we can show how they are used to further represent the revelations. And what about the dimensions? Well, I've never gone down this path before. I've kind of ignored the dimensions in the past, but I'm trying to explore something new each year, and this year I decided on the dimensions. I drilled myself about these dimensions from every which angle. I couldn't figure out any connections. I asked for help. No dice. And then just before I woke up a few days ago, I think I realized what was going on. The Aron is two and a half by one and a half by one and a half. In other words, seen from in front or from on top, it has a dimension of five over three. In decimals, this is 1.66666 ad infinitum. The Luchot, the two tablets, go inside this box. Like the other divine elements, think of the Kruvim and the Menorah, they don't have exact dimensions. What we do know is that they fit inside this box. What can these dimensions and ratios tell us? I looked at the meanings of words, other uses of similar distances, concepts of time, and so on, and I got nowhere useful. 
I could only construct highly complex and thus, for me at least, increasingly less meaningful concepts. Then I realized that the ratio itself is key. See, 3 over 5 is one of the lowest order approximations of the golden ratio. This is also called the divine proportion, or phi. I'm not going to delve into pseudoscientific ideas of how appealing it is or how approximations of it show up in nature in various places. I'm going to stick with the core mathematics. The golden ratio is the ratio between the long distance and a short distance when the sum of the two distances has the same ratio to the long distance. Now, that doesn't come across well on the podcast, so I recommend that if you're curious about the golden ratio, look it up. There is lots of material about it. What's important mathematically is that the golden ratio is the least rational number. This doesn't mean it's crazy. It means that it's hardest to approximate with a ratio. It is thus the hardest number to represent in reality. Take pi, the most famous irrational number. 22 over 7 is a common, reasonably close representation of a ratio that can't actually exist in this world. In order to get more precise approximations, you keep raising the numbers, say, to 355 over 133. These ratios will converge towards pi over time. We can approximate how close they are. Phi, which is another name for the golden ratio, converges more slowly than any other irrational number. It requires bigger numbers, bigger denominators, and bigger numerators in order to have an equally accurate ratio. Your dimension must be represented by ever more precisely cut ratios to get close to the actual value of the golden ratio. Mathematicians, feel free to correct me in the comments if I got the details wrong, but let me ask you a question. If you wanted to physically represent something that was beyond the physical, what better way could there be than making a box that just contains the least physically possible of all ratios. The Luchot go into a box that is one of the simplest approximations of a number that is the least possible to be represented in reality. The Luchot have no measurements in Torah, but their proximity to this impossible ratio is itself a representation of something beyond the physical realm. The dimensions do not approximate phi on all sides. Aside from being impossible, it is the primary faces that have this ratio. Which faces? The face towards the Kohanim, who enter the Kadosh Kadoshim, has this dimension, and the top, the face towards heaven, does as well. Okay, let's move on to the table. Its dimensions are related but different. It is two by one by one and a half, instead of two and a half by one and a half by one and a half. Here we slip from the mathematical, which describes some sort of reality beyond our reality, and into the linguistic. The dimensions are described using three words. There's length, arka, width, rachba, and height, komata. Length is used elsewhere in the Chumash to describe time. Think of so that your days may be long on the land. Width is used to describe space or size in the present tense. Yitzchak names a well rechovot because Hashem has made room for him and he would be fruitful in the land. Here we use the same idea in modern English. Montana has wide open spaces. Finally, the word for height literally means to stand up or have a presence. A makom is a place, but also a word to describe the presence of Hashem. The same thing exists in modern English. Stand up and be counted. Measured this way, the man has a little less time than the revelation of our Sinai. We remember the man, but it is no longer an active part of our lives, so the two and a half is lowered to two. The man gave only enough for a person to live for one day. There was no plenty, there was no extra in the present tense, so the 1.5 is lowered to one. And it, but in terms of the presence of the people, both are similar. The people are equally there in both cases. They stand up in the same way. With the revelation of Harsinai, the people seem to see the shofar, a sound. With the man, they see the glory of God. 
So both are 1.5. In keeping with this, the cover on the Aron has no height. It doesn't represent the people standing up. It represents the angels getting down. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. In this way, both the measurements of the table and the cover are a riff off the measurements of the Aron itself. They both have context because of the Aron. They are a derivative of it. They're derivative in another sense. Where the first dimensions have a mathematical meaning, the alternate translations of length, width, and height provide almost a meaning in physics. These words are describing size, time, and presence. Just like I'm not a mathematician, I'm no physicist, but as I understand, there is no concept of space beyond which, where there is some sort of material presence. There is no universe beyond the universe. Presence and time, rather than being afterthoughts, are actually the building blocks of reality. The building blocks of size. Now for the menorah. The menorah doesn't have dimensional measurements. At first this might seem odd, but the menorah is an entirely different kind of revelation. Instead of having dimensions, it has a weight in gold. It is a kikar. The word used for the measurement of the aron and the table is ama, translated as a cubit. The word is used for a few things, like the length of a forearm. Most interesting to me is the context of Ishmael. His descendants are described as having princes for their umotam. Most translations call them nations or tribes. The Shvatim of Israel are based on patrilineal descendants, but the umotam relationship would suggest a delineation by mothers, as ima, the root for the word, is also the word for mother. In a way, um, Hagar is more important to Ishmael's existence than Avraham was, because she prayed in order to have honor in the face of Hashem, in the face of in the face of Sarah. She she stood up for Ishmael. She protected Ishmael in a way that that that, uh, that uh, Avraham didn't. And so this connection to motherhood is is tremendously fitting. Now all of Israel could be considered an Um. We share a mother in this respect, as opposed to the tribes, which are patrilineal. Now, this is not the standard formulation of Am Yisrael, which is spelled with an Ayn and not with an Aleph. But an Amma, a cubit, is thus both a personal and a national measurement. It is a human measurement. It can't measure the menorah, which is divine representation. It also can't measure the kruvim. The kruvim, which have no physical presence in our world, have no measurement at all. But the menorah, the burning bush, has a presence. Just not one we would put in human terms. It is measured. It is just measured in terms of a kikar. So what does a kikar symbolize? To understand this, we need to move from the linguistic to the metaphorical. In the Chumash, kikar is used in two interesting contexts. It describes a loaf of bread in the wave offering, and it describes the fertile plain of Stom. What is the symbolism of the burning bush? It burns without being consumed. The menorah represents another aspect of physical impossibility. So what does a kikar have to do with that? Well, the table represents the revelation of the man in which the people got bread in the midbar, the desert. Hashem created something from nothing. He created bread and food where there was no well-watered plain. Both are hinted at by the word kikar. It is, after all, a loaf of bread in a well-watered plain. The man is an instance of the power represented by the menorah. Just as the size of the table makes sense in the context of the Aron, the weight of the menorah makes sense in the context of the man. Looked at it from another lens, 
While the revelation of the menorah came first, causality from Hashem's perspective runs in the opposite direction. Hashem's starting point to the reason everything was initiated was the giving of the Torah. But in order for the giving of the Torah to occur, the people had to see Hashem, for which the man and the lechem panim were necessary. Finally, in order for that to happen, Moshe had to experience the revelation of the burning bush. I guess in a very general sense, what I'm getting at here is that none of the materials are arbitrary, none of the measurements are arbitrary. The wood and the gold capture the essence of the revelations, and the measurements do too. They all have symbolic connections from the other reality of the Luchot to the lesser revelation of the Man to the core miraculousness of the Menorah. As we get into the Kohanim's clothing, we'll see how the different materials work, and you can see how rings and connections and the other aspects I didn't cover have their meanings. But before I leave the articles, there's one more thing I want to touch on. The first two articles have poles used to carry them. On one level, these represent national revelations, and so the poles represent the nation carrying them with them. But the menorah is different because it has a personal revelation. It is a personal revelation, and so it has no poles. But the menorah is different in a more practical way. The kikar, or talents, was probably between 70 and 110 pounds. Gold is very dense, so in terms of area, 90 pounds of gold would be about 130 cubic inches. This is actually quite small. A basketball is three times as large. A kikar, or loaf, is a pretty decent comparison. If you beat it out, put in branches to compensate for a, comp- put in branches, compensate for a lower rate of purity in ancient times, you just might end up with a beautiful and petite representation of a bush. A burning bush. The menorah might have been heavy, but it was small. It was, so to speak, personal-sized. And so it didn't need poles. Apparently, the Second Temple version, which we see in the Ark of Titus, was quite a bit bigger. I didn't initially write this in my podcast, but I want to touch on two more quick things about the, uh, about the menorah. The first is that Hashem says that you should make them after their pattern, which is shown to thee on the mount. Well, if it's talking about the everything, then that makes sense. But if it's talking about the menorah itself, then where did Moshe see the menorah? He saw it on the mountain. He saw the burning bush in the mountain. And the second thing I want to touch on is the is the is the um, bars, uh, is the branches of the menorah. The menorah has one central branch and three branches on either side. I see this as a representation of the week. We have the Shabbat serving as the middle of the week. Yes, we think of it as the end, but in a way, it's the middle of the week. In the last three days of the week, we work towards elevating ourselves towards the Shabbat. And then the first three days after the week, we are energized by the Shabbat. In a way, the holiness of the Shabbat rises above and illuminates and supports the other three day, the other six days of the week. And the other six days of the week serve as, as, the, as, the, as the basis for the Shabbat itself. It's, there's really a tremendous amount of, of, of fun imagery going on with the menorah. Before we close about the symbolism, I want to jump into the Mizbeach for just a minute. The Mizbeach is the altar. See, the Mishkan isn't a fixed representation of Hashem dwelling within the people. It is a place for action. It is a place for actually drawing close to Hashem. So we bring offerings, korbanot, which actually means closenessers, within the Mishkan in order to draw closer to Hashem. There's only one Mizbeach in this Torah reading, the bronze altar. It is bronze or Nachash. In the Bronze Age, Nachash was the metal of tools, of practicality. The bronze altar was a tool. Sheetim wood covered by copper was a practical purpose wrapped around a human core. The altar is square when looked at from the top, but from the sides, 
side, it is 3 by 5. This should be a familiar after our Aron discussion. It has that same approximation of the golden ratio. This ratio exists on all sides, but not the top. It is as if from a human perspective, the altar rises towards another reality. But from the divine perspective, it is perfectly square. It is perfectly rational. To me, this defines the offerings themselves. We slaughter an animal. We give a life. We burn parts or all of that animal. It seems like waste and destruction from a material, a human perspective. Just think about the number of animals we slaughter on an annual basis. About 77 billion animals are slaughtered for food each year. Raised up with very difficult lives, but we don't see waste in that. Even though we eat that meat, we have a tremendously hard time with the context of animal offerings in the time of the third Beit HaMikdash. It doesn't make sense to us. So just as with the slavery and the accidents, what the altar's design is telling us is what seems destructive and irrational to us can, from a divine perspective, make perfect sense. Okay, enough about the structure. Let's make a run at the other faces of Torah. This will be pretty quick, actually. Inspirational. Well, to me, the inspiration of this Parsha is itself quite practical. To many, these readings may seem like detailed schematics with meaning hidden to all, but the representations on a very basic level are extremely concrete. A lot of the symbolism in Torah is like this. It is, so to speak, down to earth. In our lives, we can only really work with the physical world, but we can still represent the spiritual world within it. We can make the spiritual world real, even using only physical tools, and, as indicated by the beating of the menorah, a little elbow grease. So if you despair of the strength of your spiritual connection, if you struggle with the magic of kavanah and prayer and mysticism, don't worry about it. The Mishkan shows us that even if we don't have those things, we can still make a place for Hashem to dwell within our lives. Through holy work, we can still make a place for Hashem. My political face is actually about last week's reading. I wanted to make a special podcast, but I just simply didn't have the time this week. So I'm going to put it in here. In Parshat Mishpatim, we have a commandment to relieve the donkey of our enemy. If it is struggling under a heavy burden, we have to help it. The burden is not the donkey's fault. The correlation isn't perfect, but this reminded me of broad-based economic sanctions. All too often, they punish the donkey, the people carrying the load for the evil leadership of their nations. The leaders may hardly notice the sanctions. Unless you are dealing with people who aren't actually evil, sanctions almost never change the course of that leadership, and they almost never read a nation of it. Just think of Cuba, Iraq, and North Korea. In the case of Iran, sanctions do have a practical benefit. The lack of cash has meant that Iran has had a much harder time funding their militias in Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. Remember, these militias operate on a principle of charity and violence. They buy loyalty when they can't acquire it by love or fear. So the sanctions limit Iran's power outside of her own borders, but they do nothing about the heart of the problem. Iran is a beautiful shadow game of a government. There are elections, but only for permitted candidates. There's a parliament and a president chosen by the people, but there's also a council of guardians and a supreme leader who choose one another. This shadow game deflects the anger of the people and helps keep the system in power and in place. It is beautifully designed. But there's also an emergency backstop. It is called the Basij Militia. It is a quasi-military force of religious fanatics called out by the regime when resistance is too broad. 
When the police and the army may not be trusted, the besieged militia can be trusted to throw acid in the face of women, machine gun crowds from the backs of motorcycles, and dispose of the bodies of thousands of protesters. It is the besieged militia that holds the government in power even in the face of broad resistance. The people want to react to the sanctions, but they can't. It is this militia that the states of Eastern Europe and even Egypt, Libya, and Tunisia lacked. Perhaps it is time we helped the donkey instead of just increasing its load. Israel clearly already works with very closely with men in Iran, but we don't work with the masses. Why don't we start a program of smuggling weapons into the country? Not Israel. It could be the U.S. or Saudi Arabia or anybody else. But they don't smuggle these weapons in for the purposes of carrying out the occasional assassination. No, they smuggle them in for the purpose of arming the donkey, of giving a means of resistance to entire neighborhoods of Tehran and other major cities. If we do this, then the next time the besieged are called out, the next time the besieged are brought to rescue the regime from the people, the people can respond. Okay, on to common questions. I have only one common question this week. Two readings ago, Hashem said that we made an altar of we can make an altar of stone or earth, and nothing that a tool has touched. So how can we have a copper altar um, that covers wood here? The answer comes up in the building of the Mishkan itself. The work is called Malachet Hakadosh, holy work. This context is the only time work and holiness are juxtaposed. The work done for the Mishkan is not the work of tools and change. It is not the work of chol or the profane and secular. Because it is commanded by Hashem and precisely described by Hashem, it is holiness itself. There is no chol. There is, from a symbolic perspective, no human tool undermining the holiness of the Mishkan or the altar. That wraps it up, folks. Once again, if these ideas appeal to you, feel free to borrow or steal them at will. The purpose of this podcast is to help people appreciate the beauty and the power and the sublime levels of meaning in the Torah. These ideas, I hope, help accomplish this, no matter whose name they are shared in. As a fun aside, my interpretation of the Torah as the Sneh, which I derived myself but later found in Christian sources, has become far more standard and acceptable in the roughly 10 years since I started sharing it with a few people here and there. So, mission accomplished. Thank you for listening, and Shabbat Shalom. Mm-hmm.